Welcome back, listeners. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Benoit Dubay, who is the Associate Professor in Clinical Psychiatry at the Perelman School of Medicine and the recently appointed Chief Wellness Officer um, in July 2018 of the University of Pennsylvania. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Dubay. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Great. So um, I know you've been at Penn for more than 20 years now, um, so I'm kind of wondering what led you to this position and what does it really mean to be the chief wellness officer and the first chief wellness officer at that? Well, that's really interesting. The, you know, the path to this position was really kind of happenstance. It was never something that was in my career path. I can't say I grew up wanting to be the chief wellness officer. There's no such thing. And it was being at the right place at the right time. Uh, The university had hired a search firm to find the new chief wellness officer search firm had reached out to me. I promptly deleted the email because I thought <laughs> it was academic spam. But then the university reached out to me and said, hey, did you hear from the search firm? And that's what began a conversation that turned into uh, what has become a unique opportunity. So this opportunity is really um, something that, on the one hand, is very exciting, but is also very daunting because there is no path. There is no precedent for this at our institution. There's also no role model from other institutions per se. So there, it's, it's a mixed bag of, it's a blank canvas, think big, but also it's a mixed canvas. You have to draw your own map. I'm very fortunate that there's many people here to guide me, to offer advance uh, advice rather, and they also have institutional experiences that I don't have. I've led an insular life, really, at the medical school for 20 years. So while I know a lot about that environment, it would be dishonest to say that, you know, I know a lot about Penn. I know a lot about Penn medicine. I don't know that much about the greater Penn universe. You know, I've gone from having 800 students to 25,000 students. And the one thing that's really fascinating is I simply am doing the same thing, but on a much broader stage. You know, I started telling you about my career path. Ultimately, I thought I would be dean of students one day. Everything I had done had prepared me for this. And that's a position I relished. Um, And at first, when this opportunity came up, it didn't register. didn't fit in what I had projected as a path for myself until at one point someone pointed out it's the same but it's a broader stage you're like the Dean of Students for 25,000 students so you get to have a greater impact and that's a very unique opportunity I feel very fortunate that this came during my professional journey here at Penn yeah Sounds scary, but exciting. <laughs> I think yeah. that you summarized exactly <laughs> how I feel. <laughs> so, so with that uh, having no kind of precedent and um, it being a blank canvas, what what have been some kind of installments that have uh, surfaced since your appointment in July? Um, so, a few things. One, um, I think that by having a health and wellness division, by having a new chief wellness officer. There's now a virtual space that didn't exist before for people to pool resources. And the blank slate analogy actually applies here. It's not entirely blank. There are a lot of wellness 
initiatives that exist have existed, but now there's a central repository to broadcast them. I see part of my responsibility as being sort of like a megaphone so that everybody knows the good stuff we're doing. Yeah. There are a lot of student-run groups that have done innovative, transformative things that have just operated in silos. The chief wellness officer's role is to break down those silos, bring like people funnel. together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But make sure that everybody is aware. Yeah. That's true. I've, I've noticed, I've been on the website, and it's very easy to kind of maneuver um, what kind of wellness you're looking for and what kind of organizations on campus are providing that. So that's super helpful in my personal experience. Um, but in, uh, in terms of doctors who create, we try to talk a lot about uh, creativity and creative approaches in medicine um, because it's easy to, for physicians to kind of fall into the mundane once they start private practice, and it's kind of the same thing day in and day out. So I'm wondering, what have you done to kind of keep your creative fire alive, whether it's um, an artistic outlet or some non-traditional approach you've taken in your uh, therapy or, or in education, in teaching? Um, so my journaling has changed since I've taken this position. Um, I now get to create synergies on paper. My day-to-day -day consists of a lot of meeting with stakeholders and during each of these meetings, I learned something new, something new that exists or a new opportunity that we can create by connecting to people that I've encountered during my listening tour, if you will. So my journaling at the end of the day, when I look for things that surprise me, touch me or inspire me, now includes creating new opportunities. and. That ability to create or to fix something or to remedy an ailment on campus at a community level is energizing, extremely fulfilling, and very, very rewarding. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. Um, and and what, is your, what is the biggest change that's happened since you've been appointed to this position, whether it's like a, you don't get to practice as much clinical medicine, or, or what have you noticed in your life that's... Um, <clears throat> I sleep less. <laughs> All kidding aside, I do. My my days are very very full. Um, they're f they were full before, but they are so differently now. Whereas I used to have the ability to intervene one on one with patients, or one on one with students, or with a classroom of students. Um, now I know that my interventions with stakeholders will create change for more people. Uh, I've not, I'm not ready to give up clinical medicine. Uh, I actually saw a patient uh, shortly this morning before coming okay. to speak with you. And initially the provost's office was a little hesitant. Uh, they wanted me to be fully immersed in wellness, to think, breathe, eat, excrete <laughs> wellness. <laughs> and they were afraid that continuing my clinical practice would distract me. And I made an argument, convincingly so, that as part of my wellness, being a healer, continuing to be a clinician, feeds my soul, and that's important. Now, maybe they know something I don't, and it's <laughs> going to become very impractical to be able to juggle both, but I just need to figure that on my own. If I had to make a guess today, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. I think that I will be able, I'll find a way to make both of these things happen. Yeah. yeah. So I know you talked a little bit about um, being a healer in medicine as, as a doctor, um, so I want to kind of shift gears and talk more about um, your role and experience with medical education since you've done that 
for so long at Penn. And I'm personally interested in medicine because to me it represents kind of the core form of humanism. And I think that we need to put more value and focus on that doctor-patient relationship um, and making sure that doctors are culturally competent. I think in the past few years, a lot of medical programs have kind of realized that and are like shifting gears to putting more focus on that. So I'm just wondering how your experience being at Penn Med, how you've seen maybe gears shift or that change being made, implemented from the other side. Oh, this is really interesting. You know, over during the 15 years where I was responsible for medical education from the Department of Psychiatry, the biggest shift has come from students. New medical students today are far more driven by and motivated by social justice, restorative justice. And students, learners, have forced curricular leaders to change the way they deliver the material to introduce material that wasn't there before and to bring worlds together that wouldn't necessarily intuitively coexist. For example, a few years ago, we uh, collaborated with the Philadelphia Museum of Art and we created a course for medical students wherein our hypothesis was that if we taught medical students about art observation, if we fostered and nurtured that skill, they would actually be better observers as clinicians and maybe potentially, because of the reflective aspect of art observation, would allow them to buffer against the erosion of empathy that occurs in medical education. We're very, very early on in this uh, process because it'll take a few years to see if the buffer effect mm -hmm. you know, has been successful, but preliminary data has supported our hypothesis. And it's an example of how there is a role for the humanities in medical education. They're not at opposite ends of the spectrum. They're complementary, and if anything, if we don't appreciate the humanity of the clinical care we deliver, I don't think that we can be good doctors. Patients are less likely to tell us things or less likely to follow our recommendations. It's kind of like if your house is built on a shaky foundation, you know, you may be fine for the first few years, but then there'll be a water leak here and then there'll be other problems that will develop and get worse over time. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, <clears throat> I see at least from my mom as a pediatrician and people uh, of that generation who did their medical studies in the late uh, kind of 20th century, there was less of this focus on uh, social justice and students making change based on what they found most valuable in the system. So I'm just wondering, in your medical trajectory, have you always been interested in having the humanities be a big part of medicine or did you go into it for a different reason and then find that, oh, these fields don't really have to be so separate? maybe I can meld them together. Well, you know, I'm, I trained as a psychiatrist, so the humanities have always been very, very, very close by. Patient stories are important in psychiatry. As a psychiatrist, words are used to diagnose, treat, um, and, and it's important to be able to listen, not for the words, but for the stories themselves. So I'm not sure that I represent or I'm in the best uh, sample in terms of uh, giving an opinion on the role of humanities, but the thought that occurred to me as I was listening is, as we've made fantastic progress at the molecular and receptor level, it's like the pendulum of medicine swung way, way, way down 
to the microscopic level right. and kind of lost sight of the patient. And I think that now that we've acclimated to this new reality of gene therapy and all these fantastic miraculous tools, the pendulum is coming back and refocusing not on the dysfunctional receptor, but the ailing person. And that means that we are once again valuing the role, the healer's role of, of doctors. Yeah. We've kind of gone too far and need yeah. to bring it back to yeah. <laughs> yeah, where it's supposed to be. So, so going a little backwards, I guess, what, uh, what drew you to psychiatry as the field that you wanted to focus in? <laughs> so the, I'll, I'll share a funny story mm-hmm. with you. It goes back to why I even went to medical school. I went to medical school in Montreal. Uh, I had gone to college in Montreal, and the French-Canadian educational system is a little bit different than the rest of North America, and there's a transition between secondary school and university, and during that period, I had always taken sciences because that's what the the smart kids Mm -hmm. do. I had done well. I liked it. But then during this two-year transition before university that's unique to the province of Quebec, There are mandatory philosophy classes, humanities classes, and that really kind of opened my mind's eye to wait, like, science is cool, but there's other cool stuff. And I took German for a year, and it was really, really mind-expanding. So that resulted in me enrolling in psychology as a psychology major and a liberal arts major at Concordia University in Montreal. Concordia has a psychology program that's very, very... Um, experimentally based. It's all about the science of human behavior, which allowed me to kind of uh, keep both of my passions alive. I was doing this really cool research on how we could use um, conditioning, classical conditioning paradigms to modulate the pain threshold. We're using animals. Mm -hmm. And um, we published papers out of it. It was really exciting. But then I became allergic to rats. <laughs> so I, I couldn't pursue the research despite having federal funding, provincial funding, institutional funding to pursue a PhD. <laughs> I, ju- I just couldn't. Wow. It was really like depressing, to be honest. I thought I might... That's a sign if I've <laughs> Well, exactly. Yeah. But in the moment, I was like, wait, there's this red carpet. Like, yeah. why, why can't I access the red carpet? <laughs> like, I thought I had it all figured out. Um, and to this day, Joseph Rushford, who was my uh, PI at Concordia, pulled me aside and said, I hear you want to take a year out. Like, why aren't you going to Queen's University? We talked about the allergies, which he was aware of, but didn't realize the extent. And he said, listen, you know, you've always said you wanted to be the psychologist on the cancer ward and that you would figure out the mind-body connection. He says, well, good luck with that. But while you're thinking about it, why don't you just go to medical school? You won't have to work with rats anymore. You can still ultimately achieve the goal that you want. So I applied to medical school, you know, a week before the deadline because of this very, very paternal uh, advice I received yeah. from Dr. Rushford. So I went to medical school because I'm allergic to rats. <laughs> and then in medical school, I was really not sure what I wanted to do. I love delivering babies. I love family medicine, the variety, the continuity. I love surgery. There's, mm. It's really cool to fix a problem, like to use your hands and to remove the problem. Yeah. It's very gratifying. The technology is cool. The surgical theater environment is fascinating. Um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. 
Then when I was doing my psychiatry rotation, I could not avoid noticing that studying for the end of clerkship exam was not a burden, but mm -hmm. rather was thrilling and fascinating. And I would find myself not making my 10 p.m. study curfew turn into 9.30 because I was like, ah. <laughs> but it would turn into like 11.30 because I would get lost in yeah. all of these articles and textbooks because back then we used textbooks. <laughs> um, <Not> and <laughs> I'm like, you know what? Since this doesn't feel like work, maybe it's a sign. And when I completed psychiatry training, I still kept all the medical stuff because I pursued consultation liaison psychiatry, which is the interface between psychiatry and medicine. So I focused my clinical career on HIV mental health, doing research on how clinical depression further impairs the immune system in mm. people who are living with HIV. And so I got to really keep both of my passions alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's very reassuring to me because I've definitely gotten the um, <clears throat> question about what I want to specialize in seven years down the line and right. I'm always torn just say I don't know I'll figure it out once I get my hands dirty because I feel like medicine is a field where you don't really get to do the thing that you've wanted to do for so long until you're finally there so why make the decision <laughs> and it's not a fair question to yeah, be honest, yeah right? like right it's just not yeah and many people come into medicine and by the time they graduate they've discovered they're passionate about something else right I can assume that yeah happens often yep um, so outside of all of these many hats that you wear, what does Dr. Dubé do for fun? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Dubé loves to travel. If it's more than 90 minutes away, I need to get on a plane. I'm not driving. <laughs> <laughs> I love to discover the world. Probably my favorite city that I've discovered recently was Hong Kong. I'd never been there before. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I love new cultures, new food. I'll try anything once. Yeah. Um, uh, that's really... My life rule is before you end your current vacation, you must have planned your next vacation. You must always have something to look forward yeah. to. I've always lived my life like that. So then when you have like more challenging days, there's always something for you to look forward mm -hmm. to. That reminds me, actually, I listened to uh, one of Oprah's podcasts where she was talking to Pico Iyer, who traveled to Japan and then found this very small village that he felt some kind of connection to, but couldn't figure out why. And so he said, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna move here. And he took a leap of faith and moved there for about two years and then really like lived there and had a lived experience. And And the podcast goes further into it. It was about mental well-being, And they were kind of stressing, taking even like 10 minutes out of your day to just be with yourself and be quiet and be still. So I'm wondering what do you kind of implement in your own life to preserve that stillness when your schedule is, I'm sure, even more busy after this appointment? <laughs> um, well, thank you for acknowledging that. Uh, <laughs> I, it's going to sound silly, and I'm not being paid by Apple to say this, but I really like the Breathe app on the Apple Watch. Uh, it's, it's a very simple but highly effective device, and by letting this program guide me through, you know, deep breaths, it can be two minutes, it can be ten minutes, uh, I get to decide. It's very easy to do that on the fly close my door, I can do that, and I feel re-energized, reconnected, and I can continue about my day. This was a conversation with Dr. Benoit Dubay on wellness and the importance of the humanities and humanity in medicine. Thank you listeners for tuning in today. Our podcasts here at Doctors Who Create are led by 
Darlena Liu, and me, Shivnad Karni. If you have any questions or feedback about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, definitely tweet us at Doctors Create. Today's music was brought to you by A. Shamalueb Music and the band Night Float, formerly known as Trisomy Rescue. Thanks again for listening.